0: Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our Conscious Collaboration podcast. My name is Yael Sivy, and I'm so pleased to be back here with you. It occurred to me that because of a very busy first quarter of my 2019 and that goes for my partner Yash as well. We have been a little remiss and we've had a little pause in our podcast recordings, but we're back. Um, And I'm really pleased to uh, welcome our guest today and uh, sort of come back with her as my partner. Um, I am here today with Laura Kiros, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Laura and then we're just going to jump into our conversation. So, uh, Laura is a PhD and an LMSW, and she's an associate professor of social work at Adelphi University, where uh, she has been in that position for the past 10 years. She teaches social work practice at the de- doctoral and master's level at Adelphi, and her research and scholarly interests focus on the social construction of racial and ethnic identity and trauma-informed care from a social justice lens. I love this last piece. The common thread in her consulting, teaching, and scholarship is elevating complexity. I feel like we could just talk about that for a long time. Elevating complexity and furthering the mission of social justice, including through diversity and inclusion.
1: So I want to say welcome, Laura. Thank you. Yeah, I am very honored to be a guest on your podcast this morning. Um, so thank you both for having me. You are so welcome. Um,
0: as we get started, Laura, this is a question we've, um, started each podcast with because we are, you know, sort of realizing we have a working definition of this thing we're calling conscious collaboration. It's the name of our podcast, but we want to check it out with people like you to see if it makes sense and to see if there are tweaks or refinements you might suggest. So I just want to remind you and, and our listeners our working definition for what we're calling conscious collaboration is the following. We think of it as an attitude, as well as a set of practices in working with and leading others in the workplace that recognizes that much of what we do at work, in particular, the interactions that we have with others can be not only an opportunity for our professional growth, but also our psychological growth as human beings and a chance and col- conscious collaboration is a chance for the workplace to actually be a more emotionally healthy place to be. So I know that's a lot of words, but it's something that we continue to sort of play with. I'd love to hear your reactions. What do you think about this? What, if anything, are we missing? Um Yeah, what do you, what are your thoughts?
1: So, so many. Um I, I subscribe to kind of the, the belief that the personal and the professional are one, right? So in my work, whether it's teaching or whether it's training or whether it's mothering or partnering, um, I don't see a distinction between the personal and professional. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about this definition that you have as, as when you shared it with me and, I also, a lot of my work, as you mentioned, to the audience is from a diversity and inclusion social justice lens. And so as a woman of color um, in this world, in this society, I I feel like my collaborations almost have to be conscious. Um, it's almost not a choice um, because I am from a biracial and bicultural background. And so all of my interactions, whether it's in the professional Space or the personal space have a conscious element to it because I'm always conscious of who I am and what parts of me I bring to that relationship. So for me, this idea of conscious collaboration is, is not a choice, right? It's sort of like how I live. Um, And I think that's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have, have the language for that because I think when I first heard about conscious collaboration I really started to think about it and realize that for me this was more a, a, a way of living um, and an intentionality around my identity and and the collaborations that i have in my life
0: oh I like that well so it sounds like the definition makes some some sense to you because it's something that you just breathe and live yeah great um so i didn't even mention at the beginning in terms of your bio that we've Had a few um, projects that we've worked with and hopefully we'll have more because for me, it's been a very enriching and fun um, and enlightening experience to work with you. So I just forgot and I wanted to mention that. Um, I'd love to hear more about what you've seen and witnessed in terms of conscious collaboration in the workplace, Um, examples of what this can look like either in leaders that you've seen in organizations that get this, and it can include, and of course, be part of you know the diversity, inclusion, equity lens, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. So I'm just
1: wondering what what have you seen that that has worked? Um, so if I may, I would like to kind of start with um, what what hasn't worked because I think that's what I've seen more of, right? Okay, so, let's start there, okay. I appreciate this definition because I think it brings an awareness and intentionality to leadership. And when I talk about leadership, I don't only mean leadership on an executive level, but I feel like every employee, every staff member, every participant in an organization has some agency in leading from a small capacity, a meeting capacity, a large capacity, if it is an executive leadership team. So what I've, what I've seen is that There actually aren't conscious collaborations, and I think that um, the work becomes siloed to just um, um, Mm task-oriented, and there's not a consciousness around personal development. And so when I have done trainings, I'm always surprised when I kind of bring in the personal reflection piece um, with executive teams or frontline staff, and I ask them to really think about who you are in this space and how your identity is always present. Like, are you conscious of that? And that this training, whether it's through a DEI lens or a trauma-informed lens, is going to touch on your personal Identity and your personal self as well. And I've heard a lot of wow, you know, I never thought about it like that. I never saw the internet intersection between my personal and my professional selves. Um, and so a lot of my work, ironically or not, because I think you and I just have such a nice. Um, flow together when we have done our trainings is this idea around intentionality of how people show up to work and are always bringing their full selves, right? So in the social work field, there's not a lot of discussions around race and culture as it relates to supervision or leadership. Um, and I always find that surprising because whether you bring up race or culture explicitly, it's always present in the room. The same with gender, right? Like we, we are who we are and the way that we show up and the way people interact with us is based on our identities and our personal selves. And if you're not conscious of that, There can be fractures to relationships, there could be, you know, leadership that's from a place of ego and not authenticity, Um, team meetings that you're not aware of nonverbal communication or um, the way who over-talks or who under-talks, who steps in, who steps out. So I've actually, a lot of my work now that I have thought about it is really about helping organizations become conscious to enhance the authenticity of the relationship, which leads to more effective and creative work. Um, So that's kind of what I've seen. And it saddens me that this idea of conscious collaboration isn't first and foremost in organizations because I really believe that it has such a positive benefit on um, not only work work environment work culture but sort of the the product or the student success or whatever your end goal is so can we
0: play a little bit more with sort of when the collaboration is unconscious mm-hmm. especially through this lens of equity and privilege and power um, what does that look like? Like, what have you seen? And of course, no names needed. But um, mm-hmm. you talked about things like nonverbals, and you know, t- talk to us because I think there are listeners that may not might not even know what they're doing unconsciously and what that mm-hmm. looks like.
1: So, um, I think a few ways. One, I'm, the first thing that comes to mind is sort of um, the way in which um, meetings are held. Just for just a very simple example, right? So who sits next to who, who speaks up the most, who falls back? How are those, um, how are those experiences, um, that are shared in the team meeting affect, affect other people. So a lot of, I, a lot of leadership material is based on white ideology. And so the unconscious piece of it is not reeling really realizing that, um, difference and diversity need a home and a place of nurturing. So a lot of, um, push these days is to diversify organizations, right? You see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not a focus on inclusion. And it's the inclusion piece that is that is the conscious piece, right? So, you know, executives might say, you know, um, come and talk to me, my door is open. But not everybody feels comfortable walking in that door. Right. So how do you how do you not only say those words, but actually set up times to actually invite people into the space? Um, look at your makeup of your leadership team and understand that it might there might be an imbalance in terms of race or gender or culture and not and with the response being. Hey, you know, we might have a pool of non-diverse applicants here or non-diverse executives in the room, but despite that, I am still working from a diversity, equity, inclusion lens. And so I am, you know, bringing different ideas to the table. I am, I am helping my staff look at sort of their whiteness and white organization ideology and ways in which that shows up. Um, so I have this, you know, small example, which I can share of, a class I taught. Um, and this actually happens a lot, but this was just very, um, this, this was just a very concrete example. We, I had started my class on time as I, I always do. Um, and like 15 minutes into the class, a white male student walks into the room, um, very loud, sits down in front, in the middle, sorry, Dr. Kuros, I'm sorry I'm late, you know, disrupts the class and And just shows up like that, right? So five minutes after that, I had a a woman of color come in late, quietly goes to the back of the class, sits down, doesn't say anything. And I noticed in that moment, just the difference in ways of being and privilege. And I mean, you could read a lot from that example, but because I'm very aware of who sits where, who talks, who doesn't, who comes in late, how they show up. I was able to use that example in my class as a way in which folks have different ways of being and what's okay and what's not okay. Um, and so for me, it's almost like as an executive, once that veil has been lifted, I'm doing very intensive coaching with with um, a very high-level partner at a a for-profit organization, um, a white male. And he's doing amazing work, but in that work is also a vulnerability on how he has led unconsciously Right for so many years, yet he's very, very high up in the corporate world, and he doesn't have to do this work. But it's there's a time, and there, there came a time in his life where something happened to him, and he was he had sat back and said, "Now it's time for me to be conscious about this. Like, how can I lead from this lens without noticing that not everybody is white and male? And what am I putting into that that's silencing other people that don't look like me or don't have the same privileges as I do?"
0: Hmm. Mm hmm. I'm just you're getting me so kind of thoughtful and full of questions. I just need to pause for a sec. So, Laura, you've got me very curious. And I know this is a big, big topic, but some of our listeners may not even be familiar with what does it mean for them to look at their whiteness? Or what does it mean for them to look at the white ideology that's informed how they think about themselves or leadership? Do you mind saying a few words about this?
1: Yes, um, and I'd like to um, start just by saying that I think that um, this is a big topic. And a lot of times, um, so in the university, we have a diversity certificate program. um, And one of the workshops that my colleague and I do is around whiteness and the history of whiteness and how this country was formed um, and the ways in which those ways of being have played out slavery, colonialism, um, and how they show up in different spaces. And when we started to name the workshop before we actually presented it, there was a pushback that they didn't want to name it whiteness or looking at whiteness because folks had a reaction to that. Um, and they had a reaction because a lot of times when you talk about diversity, folks tend to think that you're talking about people of color when really when you're talking about diversity you're talking about how whiteness has been the foundation of this country and when i say whiteness i don't only mean the color of of somebody's skin but i mean the ways in which norms um, and rules and ways of being have set up, so to have been set up in society where white becomes the ideal way of being, of looking. Um, and I'm very sensitive with this work because I understand that, you know, Robin D'Angelo's whole book on white fragility speaks about the difficulties that white identified people have in talking about whiteness because there becomes a sense of shame and guilt around around who they are. And instead of looking at and reflecting on, wow, this country was built on a history of colonialism and slavery that still plays out in different arenas, like the, like the workplace, right? Like organizational culture, you see that the majority of executives are white, white men. Um, university is, is, is fraught with just sort of predominantly white institutions Um, and still struggling to be inclusive of faculty, administration, and students of color. So these are real, these are real, um, these are real live examples. And, you know, I, I like to look at the work of Robin D'Angelo coupled with Brittany Brown's work on vulnerability when I'm working with white executives. Cause I think that, you know, I'm not, I, I, don't think that when people don't know, they just don't know, right? So if you lived in a world that has been literally and figuratively all white, how do you even begin to think about making room for diversity or for color at, on any level? And so this work has to be handled with a sense of compassion, um, with a sense of nurturing around the fact that, um, these are real issues these are real ways of being uh whiteness has been pervasive in the in the, throughout the history of this country and so how do you approach people at very very high level that have succeeded and and moved mountains without even looking at their white privilege right so for somebody to even think about wow i need to do this work now or how would this work enhance the culture of my organization says a lot, a lot, you know, sitting in these meetings with white executives that have never even thought about this before and they're confronting their identity in the space of organizations is huge. So, so when I talk about whiteness, I want to talk about it in a way that's also compassion that allows people to be vulnerable, to, to, to think about their privilege and to, to, to to think about how the way in which this country um and the history of this country has a place in organizations unconsciously. And the conscious piece becomes about reflecting on whiteness, reflecting on privilege, reflecting on ways of being, and how that might show up in organizational culture on a larger level, but then on a small, smaller level within teams. And so, you know, I think of diversity work as whiteness work, actually. I don't think about diversity work as talking to folks of color and hearing their stories about the ways that there have been... Um, there have been microaggressions or macroaggressions or discrimination. I talk about it. Okay. We have these, we have these organizations that are reflections of the history of this country. So how do we become conscious enough to actually be diverse and inclusive?
0: Mm-hmm. Great.
1: Um, I think it was you or someone you
0: maybe introduced me to through my readings who sort of creates this discernment between it's not about creating blame, shame or guilt about, you know, having privilege, because in most cases, this was not a choice. It's part of our cultural conditioning and, you know, these systems of, of power. But just because it's not your fault doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to dismantle and to D- these systems of either oppression or inequity or try to make um, the workplace a more fair and emotionally healthy place to be. Is that fair to say that sort of distinction exists yes. in that tension? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's um, so interesting too, because, you know, it, we know that some diversity uh, trainings have focused so almost exclusively on microaggressions and micro inequities and is it fair to say you're not saying that isn't part of the conversation, but you're, you're not stopping there or maybe you don't even include it. You know, I'm not sure sort of what part does that play?
1: So I think, I mean, it's twofold. I, it absolutely plays a part, but it's not the only part. So you could easily give a training on microaggressions or implicit bias. And if it stops there, then you're just, you know, sort of going down the list and checking off the fact that you had that training without actually without actually doing the deeper work of how does that show up in my life personally? How does that show up in my life professionally? And then I think the hardest thing for folks is, is, is the next step, which is like, okay, now what? And there really isn't. a now what, you know, I think, one of the hardest parts about this work is that this work is about leaving conversations unfinished. It's about being able to be in a space of ambiguity and not knowing what, what to do next. But if it comes from a place of, if it comes, if your response comes from a place of integrity and love and compassion, then you really, and I, and I know that sounds so trite, but I really do mean that you can't go wrong. Right. So somebody I might say, you know, well, what do I do if I cause a microaggression? Like, Well, think about the intention of why that happened. Um, What happened for you in that moment? Are you able to reflect on it? Are you able to come back around and say, wow, you know, I didn't even realize I did that. And I need to be more conscious of myself in this space with whoever is the recipient of my language, right? So, so it's not like I did something wrong and then there's a sorry and then there, and then you move on, right? Like it's sort of a deep reflection of what, well, where did that come from? And so I think one of the, um, I think one of the unfortunate things with diversity work is it just stops at those trainings because there's a fear that if you sort of open up You know Pandora's box—you're not going to be able to close it, and you open it up, and it will be difficult for a while. But then it comes to a real sense of consciousness and authenticity, right? Because you're actually going underneath. It reminds me—I started my work at a alternative incarceration program, like way back in the day when the therapeutic community model was very popular, and they were working with clients that had histories of substance abuse, and they never dealt. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the clients in those spaces had histories of trauma, but they—they never the clinicians that. Case managers, the substance use counselors never worked with the trauma because, one, they were scared of it, and two, they just felt like, oh, you know, these are addicts. They don't – there's nothing else there. And so I use that example because it's like if you don't sort of go deep and, and figure out the, the spot to really heal – the work's not going to change. The person's not going to change. The organization isn't going to heal because I also believe organizations are in a place of healing. And in order to heal, you have to become conscious of these collaborations and the work that you do.
0: Mm. So I, again, I want to try to unpack what people can try to be conscious of, right? So that we can try to make this as concrete as we can make a, um, amorphous and very big topic concrete. Um, you talked about the two students coming into the classroom in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, can you talk more about sort of how we can be conscious of and aware of our nonverbals, things that you've seen or things that you've noticed that can send messages that we might Again, maybe not microaggression messages, but messages of privilege, messages of
1: rank, messages of power that we might not be aware of. Um, sure. I mean, just off the top of my head, you know, who do you sit next to in meetings? Um, how many times do you speak in meetings? Do you notice people being more silent when certain comments come up? Um, are you checking in with folks after the meeting, those that were more silent are you starting the meeting with um, sort of general rules of engagement, right? So one of my big ones is always speak from the eye. I think a lot of times um, there's sort of a generalizing which comes from a place of privilege, right? But are you are you vulnerable enough to speak from the eye um, to share your experience and not generalize? Um, some of the other things that I, I help organizations become conscious with is, you know, just sort of informal meetings. Who are you having lunch with? Um, is that an inclusive group or is that exclusive of other people? Um, when you're working on sort of recruiting and hiring, hiring are you expanding your search um, in areas where there might be more diversity? And if you're not um, or if your pool is mostly white folks are you messaging to the organization that that diversity is important and so even though this might be a group of you know white executive leaders you're you're working with them around um sort of their own ways of being. Um and I and I think it's tricky because I think, you know, some organizations absolutely don't want to go there. So there's ways to sort of go around that with I have one executive, you know, send out a newsletter every Monday morning and always put in something personal about himself just to model mm-hmm. the vulnerability of, of mm-hmm. him uh, model vulnerability. Um or or have him share stories of ways in which um you know he he's working, um, with, you know, the black managers, um, and how he's, he's creating space for, um, support groups or for affinity groups. Um, so I think those, those little ways, and then the other thing I, which aren't so little, right. But then the other, you know, when you have conversations with folks, are you allowing for, um, are you allowing for repair and healing or are you, or if somebody comes to you with an issue, is your first response defensiveness, right? Mm-hmm. And I, and I think gender plays a big part in this too, um, because I think um, you know it's it's interesting, like women who have been in predominantly male male spaces come into other spaces that might be more female-dominated, like the social service world. Um, but they take up space, like the white women take up space the same way that the men did when they were in the predominantly male organizations, right? So it's sort of this, like, way of being that transfers to other spaces, Um, you know, are you being more reflective or are you being more reactive? Um, Are you taking time to sit back and think about that email before you send it? And who are you sending it to? And who are you including in it? Um, So, so those are some ways that I think people can be more conscious. And the truth is that it takes so much work. I think that, you know, as a woman of color, I have a consciousness that is completely exhausting. Right. And, um because it's on my mind all of the time um except you know maybe when i'm home with my children or my partner where i i don't have to be so conscious um but out in the world um it's 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 exhausting um and i don't and it's it's hard because i think that when you haven't had to be conscious or when you've sort of just lived because you you know the the society welcomes you and includes you and it, to ask somebody to then be conscious is a big task. And I think, you know, I would actually say that for me, the consciousness is, 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 um, you know, a way of being that just, just deepens relationships on, on so many levels, but I think it's a choice. Um, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. You're again, I'm just, I'm thinking about all kinds of things at once right now. Um, I think a few years ago when someone pointed me in the direction of, um, as a leader or as a facilitator or as a contributor in any way in the organization, one of the things I want to at least aspire to and practice is a certain amount of cultural humility. Mm-hmm. That's how this person put it. And, you know, Confucius said humility is at the foundation of all other virtues. Um, I mean, there's something about humility to me that is, I just, I'm very drawn to the concept, but I'm wondering where does humility uh, fit into this from your perspective, Laura, especially from the perspective, not from the perspective, perhaps of the person of color, but from the person who has historically had privilege or rank, the white man, but for that matter, the white woman in the workplace mm-hmm. that may, it may not be aware.
1: Yeah, I think that the humility is in line with the vulnerability, Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are, those are two and of the same. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think it's incredibly difficult to ask a high level CEO to be you know to come from a space of humility and vulnerability but i actually think that is incredibly strong and powerful and i think you know i think particularly i mean there are so many intersections here right like i think of the construction of gender for men how difficult that is right um w- because of the way that gender is constructed in the society and for women That double-edged sword of 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 being humble or having humility and vulnerability, and then that seeing being seen as weak. So I think that there are these intersections that push people back and forth between places of humility, vulnerability, weakness, strength, and to unpack that requires a very brave space, um, very brave coaching, very brave team building. Because, yeah, I mean, and I and I don't think that we have models um, to really look up to in that. I mean, I'm that's that's. I mean, I feel like the world would be such a kinder place if that's how organizations were led, how university how universities were led. Um, But with that are just you know years of constructions of gender around femininity and masculinity that make it very difficult.
0: Okay, so I know we've had this conversation before and this creative tension as we've taught workshops. How much do we give people something to do versus how much do we kind of um, invite them into non-doing and being and the messiness of this? Um, At the same time, you know, it it seems to me one framework that I've appreciated is that we're not just looking for multiculturalism and we're not even just looking for inclusion, even though both of those things are quite important and critical to, to us moving forward. To me, it's, you know, interesting to consider maybe the next frontier is what it means to be an anti-racist organization mm-hmm. the the North Star of where we're trying to head with this. So if you can't give us a cookbook on what to do, at least do we have some compass, you know, some coordinates about kind of where we're heading? Does it, Is that enough? Like, you know, I mean, it seems pretty big to me what it means to be an anti-racist organization. What do you think of that wording? And what what would that mean or look like for you?
1: So I, you know, my work is the intersection of social justice um, and trauma-informed practice. And so I kind of put anti-racist organizations under that, I think, because you know, you started off by talking about the complexity of my work. And so I'm going to just swing back to that because I think sometimes the anti-racist organization gets simplified to mean that we're just looking at race and so that one scares people to people shy off from whiteness discussions, three other, other places of difference, don't get included in that. And so I just had this conversation with an organization I'm working with. And for me, what an anti-organization Anti-racist organization means is a space where there is true authentic connection and true inclusivity on all areas, right? Um, and that's, I don't, I, my fear is that this, um, push for diversity and anti-racist organizations is going to get simplified to a place of diversity trainings and training for white folks to feel more comfortable, not to actually Look at how whiteness is the problem, right? And so that's, that's the piece that I don't, that, that I struggle with. And so when I do my work with organizations, it's always from a place of looking at, racism, sexism, classism as traumas that have impacted the organizations and how to find ways to create brave spaces where people can heal and be very transparent and authentic in their leadership and their ways of being in the organization. So they come to a place of accountability, compassion, generosity. Um, To me, those are the adjectives for an anti-racist organization. I fear for the wording because I, I don't think it captures the complexity of all of this work.
0: I like it, okay, okay. I liked that it raised the bar for multicultural organizations absolutely right but because I think it's pushing on you know power um but I but I hear you there it didn't feel complete so so thank you for sort of speaking to that um okay let let me see I know we're kind of running low on time but One little case study I wanted to sort of run by you, we're working with an organization where I think this stuff is really starting to um, explode, implode, however you want to put it, and it it, sort of the intersection of both race and privilege and gender and power as well as generation. Um, And in this organization that we're working with, a number of millennials Mm -hmm. uh, have sort of brought up to, and they're more kind of frontline middle managers, have brought up to um senior leaders that they, you know, think the organization is um, unfair and potentially, you know, racist in some ways. And why is the white executive team, why is the executive team white? Things like this. And these conversations are big and important. Mm-hmm. And yet what I notice when they're happening, Laura, is there can also be, this sort of public shaming that can happen um, or at least that some of the white executives feel like they're being called out kind of on the carpet in front of, you know, 30, 40 other people. And I don't necessarily have the right answer to this because I think part of what this is, and it's not just in this organization, but societally, we, we are dealing with kind of a moment of reckoning around things that we have not questioned and me too. And all kinds of other movements are a part of this, this sort of, you know, questioning things that we've accepted that are ridiculous and unfair. Um, how should these conversations happen? Any thoughts on what you've seen worked and things that organizations or, or people like me should keep in mind, you know, as, as we're supporting um, teams and organizations like this?
1: So I do, I will have to kind of um, fall back on the word kindness because I think that, um, I don't think the shame is really helpful. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do in these spaces is very organic. And so a lot of my successes with mm-hmm. meetings are in the moment. And so we will have people, you know, talking about ways in which, you know, there has been microaggressions or, um racism showing up in the organization and the way in which how they're said, how they're reported, how they're responded to are in the moment um, are are in that moment are ways to also find healing. So for example, um, we had an issue at an organization um, and It was around gender and the male in the room got very defensive. Not, not, he wasn't harsh, but he was definitely defensive and wasn't able to be reflective in that moment. And so in that moment, I asked, I asked him a question about how he thought of his response and if he was Mm -hmm. responding to what this person told him or if he was responding to the narrative in his head, right? Like what was happening for him in that moment? And because we hadn't been with each other for a while, he was able to do that. And then. Become reflective after, um, and bring it back, but it's those like, you know, it's those, it's being able to have a leader in that space or a facilitator and kind of, I don't want to say call people out because I think that has a negative connotation, but, but bring awareness to what's happening in that, moment and how the tone people are using the defensiveness that's coming up. You know, I think a lot of time folks are hesitant to ask for one of my big questions is tell me more about that or What do you mean by that? I think a lot of times when we say, oh, well, that, you know, that he or she meant that, and, you know, you said that, and you were, you know, creating narratives in our head about assumptions that aren't reality or aren't that person reality. And I do think that, you know, perception is reality, but I also think we're not taught enough to be curious and to say, what did you mean by that? Or, you know, yeah, you taught me that. Like, ouch, that didn't feel good. You know, what, what? what what was happening for you at that moment and so i think getting organizations um to do that work with each other in the space and then i also think you know i do a lot of work after meetings and processing with people if i notice something in a meeting and i didn't bring it up because i felt like it just was not the moment to bring it up i'll follow up with them after i think that um i think that there is um this kind of shaming around around whiteness um, and the defensiveness that leads to that is something that needs to be brought up in the moment I had a, a, a one of the employees say to me you know um, some woman said to me she was triggered by me because I'm white and Jewish and the whiteness didn't bother me with the Jewish piece did and you know I can't believe she said that and I said to her, what did she mean? Like, what was her definition of Judaism to you? Like, what what characteristics was she putting on you? Like, what did she mean by Jewish? Because, you know, you might be white and Jewish, I'm Latina and Jewish, and I'm sure that shows up for people in different ways. So did you ask her? And she's like, no, but she had created a narrative in her head already that, of all these assumptions of what that woman meant by being triggered by her being Jewish and white without asking. And so I think if we could get to a place of curiosity and asking without making assumptions, um, we would be in a much better place.
0: Nice. I'm aware, um, Laura, that we're, out of time and yet in a way we've kind of just begun the conversation or it certainly could be continued. So I may have to just have you back and I'm just going to flag that right now.
1: <laughs>
0: um, I am aware of a, a few things that you're leaving me thinking about the power of curiosity, the power of reflection, power of authenticity, not necessarily as salves, um, but as some real practices that, that we can um use and intentions that we can. Um, have in our day to day work, whether we're leaders or not. And as you said, you know, leaders exist at every level of an organization. Um, so I want to thank you so much. Any last words you want to say before we sign off? I just want
1: to thank you both. I think your work is incredible. I read your newsletters. You've taught me so much, um, giving language to this work, um, felt very powerful to me. Um, and so I just look forward to working more with you and learning from each other and just feel really thankful for our, our connection. Same.
0: All right. Maybe next time we'll even say more about our collaboration because that's been a a whole adventure too and very fun. So thank you again so much, Laura. I hope um, listeners enjoyed this conversation. Let us know what you think and have a great day. Thank you.